To support this podcast or any of the other shows produced by Trivium Studios, visit our website at triviumstudios.org. On our site, you'll find links to our Patreon page, social media, the services we offer, and much, much more. Your traffic on the webpage, subscription to this podcast, and willingness to subscribe and rate help us reach a wider audience, so we appreciate you taking the time to help us out. Just head down to TriviumStudios.org to support the show. If you would like to advertise on this podcast or any of the shows associated with the Trivium Studios Network, please email us at sophist at triviumstudios.org. That's sophist at triviumstudios.org. Thanks again. To begin today's episode, I want to briefly introduce the audience to the City of London. To do so, I'm going to read quite a hefty piece of text from a Guardian, Guardian article published in 2011. Today's episode will contain quite a bit of red text, but I believe it's time worth, or it's well worth the time spent considering the claims that I intend to make throughout today's episode. Returning to that Guardian article, quote, It's the dark heart of London, the place where democracy goes to die, immensely powerful, equally unaccountable. But I doubt that one in ten British people has any idea what the corporation of the City of London is and how it works. What is this thing? Ostensibly, it's the equivalent of a local council, responsible for a small area of London known as the Square Mile. But, as its website boasts, among local authorities, the City of London is unique. You bet it is. There are 25 electoral wards in the Square Mile, In four of them, the 9,000 people who live within its boundaries are permitted to vote. In the remaining 21, the votes are controlled by corporations, mostly banks and other financial companies. The bigger the business, the bigger the vote. A company with 10 workers gets two votes. The biggest employers, 79. It's not the workers who decide how the votes are cast, but the bosses who appoint the voters. Plutocracy, pure and simple. There are four layers of elected representatives in the corporation, common councilmen, aldermen, sheriffs, and the Lord Mayor. To qualify for any of these offices, you must be a free man of the City of London. To become a free man, you must be approved by the aldermen. You're you're most likely to qualify if you belong to one of the city livery companies, medieval guilds such as the worshipful company of costermongers, cut purses, and safe crackers. To become a sheriff, you must be elected from among the aldermen by the livery. How do you join a livery company? Don't even ask. The current Lord Mayor, Michael Baer, came to prominence within the city as chief executive of the Spitalfields Development Group, which oversaw a controversial business venture in which the corporation had a major stake, even though the project lies outside the boundaries of its authorities. This illustrates another one of the company's unique, the corporation's unique features. It possesses a vast pool of cash, which it can spend as it wishes, without democratic oversight. As well as expanding its enormous property portfolio, it uses this money to lobby on behalf of the banks. The Lord Mayor's roles, role, the corporation's website tells us, is to open doors at the highest levels for businesses in the course of which he expounds the values of liberalization, 
Liberalization is what bankers call deregulation, the process that caused the financial crash. The corporation boasts that it handles issues in Parliament of specific interest to the city, such as banking reform and financial services regulation. It also conducts extensive partnership work with think tanks, vigorously promoting the views and needs of financial services. But this isn't the half of it. As Nicholas Shackson explains in his fascinating book, Treasure Islands, the corporation exists outside of many of the laws and democratic controls which govern the rest of the United Kingdom. The City of London is the only part of Britain over which Parliament has no authority. In one respect, at least, the corporation acts as the superior body. It imposes on the House of Commons a figure called the Remembrancer, an official lobbyist who sits behind the Speaker's chair and ensures that, whatever our elective representatives might think, the city's rights and privileges are protected. The Mayor of London's mandate stops at the boundaries of the square mile. There are, as if in the novel by China Mivelle, two cities, one of which must unseat the other. Several governments have tried to democratize the city of London, but all threatened by its financial might have failed. As Clement Attlee lamented, over and over again, we have seen that there is in this country another power that has, or, than that which has a seat at Westminster. The city has exploited this remarkable, remarkable position to establish itself as a kind of offshore state, a secret sea jurisdiction which controls the network of tax havens housed in the UK's crown dependencies and overseas territories. This autonomous state within our borders is in a position to launder the ill-gotten cash of oligarchs, kleptocrats, gangsters, and drug barons. As the French investigating magistrate Eva Jolly remarked, it has never, it has never transmitted even the smallest piece of usable evidence to a foreign magistrate. It deprives the United Kingdom and other nations of their rightful tax receipts. It has also made the effective regulation of global finance almost impossible. Saxon shows how the absence of power regulation in London allowed American banks to evade the rules set by their own government. AIG's wild trading might have taken place in the US, but the unit responsible was regulated in the city. Lehman Brothers couldn't get legal approval for its off-balance sheet transactions in Wall Street, so it used a London law firm instead. If you've ever differed, if you've ever dithered over the question of whether the UK needs a written constitution, dither no longer. Imagine the clauses required to pre preserve the status of the corporation. The City of London will remain outside the authority of Parliament. Domestic and foreign banks will be permitted to vote as if they were human beings, and their votes will outnumber those cast by real people. Its elected officials will be chosen from people deemed acceptable by a group of medieval guilds. According to the City of London's own corp or the City of London Corporation's own website, quote, the City of London is also known as the Square Mile, the financial district and historic center of London. It is one of the 33 areas with local authority responsibilities into which London is divided. Administratively, London is divided into 32 boroughs and the City of London. Local authority services are provided by the City of London Corporation. The residential population of this small area is approximately 8,000 people. However, however, over 
500,000 people commute into the city every day for work, and over 10 million visit as tourists every year. The City Corporation is the governing body of the square mile dedicated to a vibrant and thriving city, supporting a diverse and sustainable London within a globally successful UK. We aim to contribute to a flourishing society, shape outstanding environments, and support a thriving economy. By strengthening the character, capacity, and connections of the city, London, and the UK for the benefit of people who live, learn, work, and visit. Find out more about our corporate plan. Welcome to the Pursuit of Trivium, Rhetoric, Logic, and Grammar for the Modern Age, the newest podcast from the Trivium Studios Network. I'm your host, Eli Brown, and in this show we hope to explore the narratives that shape our world, the reason behind the rhetoric, and the people crafting the words. For more details on today's episode, don't forget to check the show notes attached to this post on our website. Today's episode explores the City of London, the theory of relativity, reflexivity, and the utopian ideals behind the open society which have manifest themselves under the rule of the corporation. Now please, sit back, relax, and enjoy The Pursuit of Trivium, Season 1, Episode 5, City Corporation. Last episode, we touched briefly upon the theory of reflexivity. In an article entitled Libraries and Open Society, Popper, Soros, and Digital Information, published in 2001 by the University of London. The paper noted, quote, The traditional market doctrine suggests that with perfect information, markets will take care of themselves, returning to their natural position of equilibrium. The main task is to make the necessary information available and to, inv- to, and to avoid any interference with the market mechanisms, Soros 1998. But Soros demonstrates that this is not a valid an- analysis of how markets truly work. The phenomenon of reflexivity, noted later, leads to three more sophisticated relationships between information and the a- operation of the market, and by extension, society. Open societies, Soros reminds us, consist of encumbered individuals, by contrast with the unencumbered individuals of the Enlightenment philosophers, the thinking of encumbered individuals is formed by their social setting, the family ties and other ties, the culture in which they are reared. They do not occupy a perspectiveless position. They are not endowed with perfect knowledge." In order to understand what exactly this theory of reflexivity actually is and how it has affected Soros' investing around the world, um, it's important that we understand Soros himself. In The Capitalist Threat, an article he published in The Atlantic in 1997 after he moved a um, majority of his um, investments investment interest to the United States, he noted he um, noted the beginning half of his lifetime, writing, quote, When I had made more money than I needed, I decided to set up a foundation. I reflected on what I really cared about. Having lived through both Nazi persecution and communist oppression, I came to the conclusion that what was par- paramount for me was an open society. So I called the foundation the Open Society Fund, and I defined its objectives as opening up closed societies, making open societies more viable, and promoting a critical mode of thinking. That was in 1979. My first major undertaking was in South Africa, but it was not successful. 
The apartheid system was so pervasive that whatever I tried to do made me a part of the system rather than helping to change it. Then I turned my attention to Central Europe. Here, I was more successful. I started supporting the Charter 77 movement in Czechoslovakia in 1980 and Solidarity in Poland in 1981. I established separate foundations in my native country, Hungary, in 1984, and in China in 1986, the Soviet Union in 1987, and Poland in 1988. My engagement accelerated with the collapse of the Soviet system. But now I have established, by now, I have established a network of foundations that extends more than 25 countries, not including China, where we shut down in 1989. Operating under communist regimes, I never felt the need to explain what open society meant. Those who supported the objectives of the foundations understood it better than I did, even if they were not familiar with the expression. The goal of my foundation in Hungary, for example, was to support alternative activities. I knew that the prevailing communist dogma was false exactly because it was dogma, and that it would become unsustainable. Um, unsustainable, excuse me, if it were exposed to alternatives. The approach proved effective. The foundation became the main source of support for federal or for civil society in Hungary, and as civil society flourished, so the communist regime waned. After the collapse of communism, the mission of the foundation network changed. Recognizing that an open society is a more advanced, more sophisticated form of social organization than a closed society, because in a closed society there is only one blueprint, which is imposed on society, whereas in an open society it, each citizen is not only allowed but required to think for himself, the foundations shifted from a subversive task to a constructive one. Not an easy thing to do when the believers in an open society are accustomed to subversive activity. Most of my foundations did a good job, but unfortunately they did not have much company. The open societies of the West did not feel a strong urge to promote open societies in the former Soviet Empire. On the contrary, the prevailing view was that the people ought to be left to look after their own affairs. The end of the Cold War brought a response very different from that at the end of the Second World War. The idea of a new Marshall Plan could not even be mooted. When I proposed such an idea at a conference in Potsdam, in what was then still East Germany in the spring of 1989, I was literally laughed at, end quote. In the historical literature, that conference at Potsdam is also known as the Bretton Woods Conference. At the end of that article, Soros notes that he um, advocated for a new Marshall Plan or a new um, wave of, demo de of Western funding into what had formerly been Eastern Europe and the Soviet bloc. However, in order to truly understand what was going on at this time, we must also turn to an outside source, considering this is only Soros' perspective and is mitigated by the interests of Soros himself. A Guardian article covering the same topic in 2018 noted that, quote, how could Soros ensure that newly opened societies would remain free? Soros had come of age in the era of the Marshall Plan and experienced American largesse firsthand in post-war London. To him, this experience showed that weakened and exhausted societies could not be rehabilitated without a substantial investment of foreign aid, which would alleviate extreme conditions and provide the minimal material base that would enable the right ideas about democracy and capitalism to flourish. 
For this reason, in the late 80s and early 90s, Soros repeatedly argued that only the deus ex machina of Western assistance could make the Eastern Bloc permanently democratic. People who have been living in a totalitarian system all their lives, he claimed, need outside assistance to turn their aspirations into reality. Soros insisted that the US and Western Europe give the countries of Eastern Europe a substantial amount of pecuniary aid, provide them with access to the European common market, and promote cultural and educational ties between the East and West that benefit a pluralistic society. Once accomplished, Soros vowed, Western Europe must welcome Eastern Europe into the European community, which would prevent the continent's future repartitioning. Soros' prescient plans went, er, excuse me, Soros' prescient pleas went unheeded. From the 1990s on, he has attributed the emergence of kleptocracy and hypernationalism in the former Eastern Bloc to the West's lack of vision and political will during this crucial movement. Democracies, he lamented in 1995, seem to suffer from a deficiency of values and are notoriously unwilling to take any pain when their vital self-interests are not directly threatened. For Soros, the West had failed in an epochal task, and in doing so had revealed its short-sightedness and fecklessness. Yet, it's important to note that even the Open Society Foundation, run by George Soros himself, notes that Soros did invest in the region at that time. Though he was ignored by most other foundation networks, he was quick to invest in the region. In fact, an article published by Open, the Open Society Foundation in 2019, entitled George Soros and the Fall of Communism in Europe, argued that, quote, George Soros gave away millions of dollars in Eastern and Central Europe in the 1980s and 1990s to support the emergence of Open Society, an idea based in the philosophy of Karl Popper, the, the Austrian-British thinker under whom Soros studied as a young man at the London School of Economics. Now, it's clear that Soros has an underlying philosophy which guides his investing interests. He wouldn't be so successful in investment if this weren't the case. His hedge fund, Quantum, has been large, was largely successful during the 1990s, and the Open Society Foundation has since extended its influence across the globe. All of this, according to George Soros, is because of a theory of reflexivity that which was noted in the paper which was discussed last episode. He explains his theory in a speech entitled The Theory of Reflexivity by George Soros. It was delivered April 26, 1994, the MIT Department of Economics World Economy Laboratory Conference in Washington, D.C. This, once again, is a rather long text, but in order to fully understand the theory of reflexivity, which I would argue underlies the investment features of foundation networks today, it's important that we fully understand the way in which Soros thinks about the idea. Quote, I don't know too much about the prevailing theory of financial markets, but from what little I know, it continues to maintain the approach established by classical economics. This means that financial markets are envisioned as playing an essential pa essentially passive role. They discount the future, and they do so with remarkable accuracy. 
there is some kind of magic involved, and that is, of course, the magic of the marketplace where all the participants, taken together, are endowed with an intelligence far superior to that which could be attained by any particular individual. I think this interpretation of the way financial markets operate is severely distorted. That is why I have not bothered to familiarize myself with an effective market theory, or efficient market theory, and modern portfolio theory, and that is why I take such a jaundiced view of derivative instruments which are based on what I consider a fundamentally flawed principle. Another reason is that I am rather poor in mathematics. It may seem strange that a patently false theory should gain such widespread acceptance even for one consideration, that is, that all our theories about social events are distorted in some way or another. And that is the starting point of my theory, the theory of reflexivity, which holds that our thinking is inherently biased. Thinking participants cannot act on the basis of knowledge. Knowledge presupposes facts, which occur independently of the statements which refer to them. But being a participant implies that one's decisions influence the outcome. Therefore, the situation participants have to deal with does not constitute does not consist of facts independently given, but facts which will be shaped by the decision of the participants. There is an active relationship between thinking and reality, as well as the passive one which, which is the only one recognized by natural science and by way of false analogy, also by economic theory. I call the passive relationship the cognitive function and the active relationship the participating function and the interaction between the two functions I call reflexivity. Reflexivity is, in effect, a two-way feedback mechanism in which reality helps shape the participant's thinking, and the participant's thinking helps shape, re helps shape reality in an unending process in which thinking and reality may come to approach each other, but can never become identical. Knowledge implies a correspondence between statement and facts, thoughts and reality, which is not possible in this situation. The key element is the lack of correspondence, the inherent divergence between the participants' views and the actual state of affairs. It is this divergence, which I have called the participants' bias, which provides the clue to understanding the course of events. That, in very general terms, is the gist of my theory of reflexivity. The theory has far-reaching implications. It draws a sharp distinction between natural science and, and social science and it introduces an element of indeterminacy into social events which is missing in the events studied by natural science. It interprets social events as a never-ending historical process and not as an equilibrium situation. The process cannot be explained and predicted with the help of universally valid laws in the manner of natural science because of the element of indeterminacy introduced by the participant's bias. The implications are so far-reaching that I can't even begin to enumerate them. They range from the inherently instable, the inherent instability of financial markets to the concept of an open society, which is based on the recognition that nobody has access to the ultimate truth. The theory gives rise to a new morality as well as a new epistemology. As you probably know, I am the founder and the funder of the Open Society Foundation. That is why I feel justified in claiming that the theory of reflexivity has guided me in both making and in spending money. That passage is perhaps the most critically underrated passage in understanding our modern world today. 
If we were only to realize this participant bias, we would totally understand the way in which hedge funds investors make so much off of our system. We would totally understand the way in which our political, um, or the way in which our political institutions fail to possibly predict outcomes, or probably predict outcomes, and we would realize the um, way in which our market's boom and bust cycle is actually guided by a lack of real understanding. Though Soros was the first one to introduce um, this investing schema to the Western world, there were other people coming across the theory at the same time. By the um, by, Y two K, Soros had begun to gain international attention, especially because of his influence in the Eastern Bloc via his own Marshall Plan. As such. The Institute of Psychology of Russian Academies of Science, or rather, excuse me, the International Interdisciplinary Scientific and Practical Journal, published an article called Reflexive Processes and Control. The journal itself was founded by the Institute of Psychology of the Russian Academy of Sciences by Vladimir Lepsky, in and the following article was published in 2002. Quote, as far as this attitude towards the historical process is concerned, George Soros has a great predecessor. Niccolo Machiavelli, who stated it in his immortal bestseller, The Prince, that, quote, however so that our free will is lost, we can, it seems to be, it seems to me, consider it right that the fate governs half our actions while it leaves for, leaves for us to govern the other half or so, end quote. And further, quote, I also assert that 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 happy that excuse me i also assert that that ha that person is happy who adjusts his acting to the conditions of his time and that equally unhappy is the person whose actions are in discord with the time end quote it is difficult to deny that for all the difference between the terminology of renaissance writers the fate the condition of time etc and the modern terminology the historical process tendencies etc there is something similar in the statements of these two thinkers in the times of Machiavelli, one would invoke the power of fate, while one now would refer to the power of the objective historical process that does not depend on the will of its participants. It may be appropriate to remind Karl Marx's maxim, the being defines the mind, and that a lot of philosophical speculation on this topic. In the minds of these thinkers, the same idea seems to take different forms. According to Machiavelli, our actions are, in half, the function of fate, and, in the other half or so, is the result of our own choice. According to George Soros, our efforts represent the function of the environment, while our influence on it determines the historical process. He describes the reciprocal feedback system between the participants' thinking and the situation, or, more exactly, the interaction this feedback brings about, as reflexivity. The being determines the thinking, and the thinking determines the being. That is probably his maximum synthesis. An important comment needs to be made here. The concepts like reflexive process, reflexivity, as they are used by George Soros, should not be confused with their homonyms, used by professional psychologists who study the interaction between thinking and acting subjects. Reflexivity is defined by V. Lefebvre or VL, as I'll refer to him here, as follows. Reflexivity, in its traditional philosophical and psychological meaning, as is an ability to take a position of an observer, researcher, or controller of your own body, your actions, or your thoughts.
We will broaden this understanding of reflexivity and will consider that reflexivity is also the ability to take a position of a follower to another person, his, her actions and thoughts. V. Lepsky adds, quote, the concept of reflexivity was broadened. Reflexivity began to understand, be, or began to be understood also as modeling, as modeling a system by another system with the models included in that other system. It is clear that the concepts of reflexivity and reflexive process as a movement in a feedback connection include the cognitive and influencing functions of the subjects participating of a historical process, sub-process, as they are treated by George Soros, are not equivalent to the concepts of reflexivity and reflexive process as seen in the scientific trend headed by V. Lefebvre and V. Lepsky. Yet these two approaches have much in common. For example, George Soros, independently from VL, comes to the realization that an unlimited supremacy of natural scientific tradition in, human, in humanities hinders social sciences by imposing onto them a worldview and methodology that are based on eliminating everything that is subjective. An acting subject is considered to be an object under study, a machine that is clearly and straightforwardly reacts to an outside signal and any deviation is regarded as the noise of the equipment. As early as the 1960s, VL came to a methodologically important conclusion that the tradition of natural sciences is based upon two implicit postulates. A theory of an object developed by a researcher does not result from the activity of the object itself. The object is not, and two, the object is not dependent on the fact of the existence of a theory reflecting this object. Furthermore, VL observes that for social sciences, the second postulate is violated in a, con in a conflict situation. It is easy to see that the first postulate is also violated when one of the rivals imposes certain ideas about himself or another on another rival. When starting to study social and psychological facts, a researcher becomes just one of the characters in a game that we call reflexives. Since he cannot exclude the possibility of contact with the characters under study, his theoretical his theoretical constructions, being assimilated by these characters, can greatly change the functioning of the whole system. On the other hand, the researcher can be taken prisoner by an object. His conception will be imposed upon him by the object. Soros follows a similar path. First, he levels a sting criticism at the natural science paradigm and its most illustrative example, Karl Popper's deductive nomological DN model. The Achilles heel of this model is its requirement that the meaning of statements be isolated from the statements made in their respect. Moreover, original and final conditions have, have to consist of facts that can be observed while generalizations must have a universal character. Though that passage is rather hard to pick through, essentially the authors at this point in 2002 have realized a budding theory that's come to light independently in several um, disciplines or professional disciplines. That being said, um, though this study was published in 2002, Soros wasn't the only one coming up with this idea as early as the 1970s and 80s. In fact, VL, um, noted multiple times in the previous article, came up with this idea as early as 1981 when he published an article for the School of Social Sciences at the University of California, Irvine, um, entitled Modeling of Quantum Mechanical Phenomenon with the Help of the Algebraic Model of Ethical Cognition. The abstract reads, quote, In this paper, there is a brief description of an algebraic model of ethical cognition based on an exponential representation of Boolean functions. 
This model allows us to connect the behavior of an individual with the structure of his inner world. Unexpectedly, we found that classical idealized experiments on the interface of the electrons from two slots can be simulated with the help of the same model. Thus, we succeeded in establishing a concrete connection between the phenomenon of cognition and quantum phenomenon by looking at quantum mechanics through the psychologist's eyes." End quote. Though Vial at this point was trying to apply his um, algebraic model of ethical cognition to the, um, what was at that point, drowning th field of theoretical th physics, by 2002, when the, in, when the Russian Institute was writing, his and Soros's ideas had been well enough to de develop to apply to social sciences more generally. Though physics took a different path instead exploring string theory, VL came to um, a more prestigious position within the Russian social sciences within the Russian social social sciences hierarchy, insofar as he was the first Russian to come up with a theory of reflexivity in this um, of this kind. That all being said, it seems as though, given an organic um, rising of the theory from multiple places, there must be some truth of it acting out in the real world. So, what does it look like when this theory of reflexivity predicts a market correctly and an investor can make money off of it? Well, in The World According to Soros, a New, work, New Yorker expose from 1995, Quote, in mid-September of 1992, there was a massive speculators raid on the pound. Several weeks after the crisis, though, Soros, an introverted um, iconoclist, called an old, an old friend, referred to here as AK, a financial journalist for the London Times, and arranged an interview. In AK's article, Soros stated that, as the press had con conjectured, <clears throat> sorry, in AK's article, Soros stated that, as the press had conjectured, his fund, Quantum, and several of its offshoots had bet roughly $10 billion against the pound, about $9 billion of which was borrowed in Soros's customary leveraging. He also said that Quantum's combined speculation, mainly against the pound, had garnered a profit of about $2 billion. Soros became even more expansive, declaring that in the days before the pound's collapse, we must have been the, sing the biggest single factor in the market. Soros's colleagues in the financial community, including some of Quantum's directors and shareholders, were stunned at his public revelations. To this day, many expressed bewilderment at his action. One person in the hedge fund community said to me, Why bring light to this subject? Why bring attention to yourself? But where others only saw a downside, Soros saw an opportunity. Edgar Astaire, who had been friendly with Soros for close to 30 years, told me, quote, George never wanted publicity, but he feels he's past that. He feels he's impregnable now. What Soros wanted more than anything was to be heard. He was gambling that he would be able to translate celebrity status in one field, finance, into another, public policy. That celebrityhood was essentially generic. Now, those two paragraphs seem to be entirely at odds with one another. The question posed by hedge fund investors seems to still be relevant. Why would it be that Soros would have called attention to himself and his own investment strategies if he wanted to keep investing with them? 
Well, once again, it might help to get an outside perspective. In a book titled The Great Bricks at Swindle by T.J. Coles, he note, the author notes on page 34, quote, According to the Financial Times, Downing Street and senior pro-EU Tory officials have been concerned for some time that wealthy hedge fund figures, many of whom are Eurosceptic, could pour money into the Brexit campaign, boosting its resources ahead of a referendum due by 2017, which the Tories decided to hold in 2016 when Euroscepticism was rife among the natural the, rife among the electorate, many of whom had been conditioned to believe that Brussels, not Whitehall and the City of London Corporation, was the source of their woes. Not all sources quote anonymous traitors. George Soros, the multi-billionaire spectator, caused the crisis of confidence in the British pound in 1992 by betting on its devaluation. Soros bragged, I was fortunate enough to make a substantial profit for my hedge fund investors on the expense of the Bank of England and the British government. On Brexit, he said, there are speculative forces in the markets much bigger and more powerful than proprietary banks, and they will be eager to exploit any miscalculations by the British government or British voters. Soros is one of them. He allegedly made billions or millions buying gold, a so-called safe market, before Brexit, though his official position was remain. So, the answer then is that if you can control the media, then you don't need to worry about what events will take place. Investors have realized this. Foundation networks that are tied to corporations, as we've seen in previous episodes, have, um, or rather, hold sway over institutions of governance, institutions that are supposed to be separate from the private sector. They can then influence these institutions, allowing for a separation between reality and expectations. This reflexive action then occurs, and investors such as Soros make billions of dollars, having initiated um, the diversion between reality and expectations with the first side of his equation, and having profited off of it with the second side. Unfortunately for the United States, Soros is no longer only investing in Europe, in Eastern Europe, and in London. According to a political article from 2019, Soros launched a super PAC for 2020. Quote, Democratic mega-donor George Soros is creating a super PAC called Democracy PAC to serve as a hub for his 2020 election spending. Soros has so far put $5.1 million into the PAC, according to paperwork filed with the Federal Election Commission on Wednesday. His $5.1 million contribution was the single biggest check any major donor has cut so far during the 2020 election cycle. Given Soros' understanding of reflexivity, it would seem as though he has already predicted the outcome of the coming election. Moreover, it would seem as though by predicting the outcome of a political scheme, you can make a lot of money all over the world. Turning back to the City of London Corporation, if corporations were able to run the political establishment themselves, it would seem as though the profits would be infinite. To support this podcast or any of the other shows produced by Trivium Studios, visit our website at triviumstudios.org.
On our site, you'll find links to our Patreon page, social media, the services we offer, and much, much more. Your traffic on the webpage, subscription to this podcast, and willingness to subscribe and rate help us reach a wider audience, so we appreciate you taking the time to help us out. Just head down to TriviumStudios.org to support the show. If you would like to advertise on this podcast or any of the shows associated with the Trivium Studios Network, please email us at sophist at triviumstudios.org. That's sophist at triviumstudios.org. Thanks again.